because you can't really choose who you are, but because who you are is just who you were born to be, you've got to find yourself. And that's why people prefer personality tests or try to, they try to find ways to figure themselves out. And, you know, the research at this point is pretty dang clear that that's just not true. Your personality changes over time. You know, you're not the same person you were four or five years ago. You're going to, you have different preferences. You've got different habits. You've got a different environment. Mm -hmm. And those things can change abundantly over time. So your view of yourself is very different. And mm -hmm. so that's kind of the core aspect is that it does change and it can change very dramatically. And the longer the gap between when you, let's just say, take a personality test, you're going to get very, very different scores. Have you ever let stress get the better of you? Want to know how to maximize your productivity? My name is Tommy Bowie. Follow me as I deep dive into the minds of successful entrepreneurs and industry professionals on the tools, tips, and strategies they use to overcome stress and boost productivity in their daily lives, especially when the going gets tough and the stakes are high. This is the Stressless Entrepreneur Podcast. In 2018, he and his wife, Lauren, adopted three kids from the foster system. A month after the adoption, Lauren became pregnant with twins also born in 2018. Now, in 2020, they're pregnant again with their sixth child. He's an organizational psychologist and best-selling author of Willpower Doesn't Work. His blogs have been read by over 100 million people and are featured on Forbes, Fortune, CNBC, and many others. From 2015 to 2018, he grew his email list to over 350,000 people as the number one writer in the world on Medium.com. In today's episode, we'll be talking about his up-and-coming book, Personality Isn't Permanent where he debunks the myth that personality is innate and unchangeable and gives you science-backed strategies for becoming the person you want to be. Today, I have with me Benjamin P. Hardy. Ben, thank you so much for being a part of the Stressless Entrepreneur podcast. I love it, man. Happy to be with you. Good to be with you, Tommy. Ben, I wanted to get you on the show today because you've just released a book called Personality Isn't Permanent, where you dispel many myths of personality that have been captured through pop culture. But before we dig deeper into the book, are you able to tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. Yeah, so uh, I have obviously a PhD in organizational psychology. I've spent the last probably 10 or 12 years really studying hardcore psychology, human performance, things like that, entrepreneurship as well. Obviously, so I'm really stoked to be on your show. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, my, um, my master's thesis was on the differences between wannabe entrepreneurs versus successful entrepreneurs and what were the psychological differences. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about and studying entrepreneurship as well, which is very intriguing and a beautiful study. So yeah, just really love learning and thinking and writing and communicating and sharing and helping people get a change of perspective. And the reason I like that is because I, I personally love having my own perspective changed. And you know, obviously we'll go pretty deep into this probably on the, on the interview, but if your perspective hasn't changed recently, then you're not learning. <laughs> and so yeah, my perspective changes all the time. My wife and I have five kids, and actually, I recently found out she's pregnant again. So we're gonna have a sixth, and that will probably be the last. Oh, congratulations! Yeah, thank you, man. We adopted our older three kids from the foster system. We've got two twins, and I guess we'll have one more, and then we'll call it quits. In regards to the five kids, there's a quote from your book that I just quickly want to read for the listeners, and it starts with, "During my first year as a foster parent." I was constantly dealing with challenges that felt like they were far outside what I could handle with my natural abilities. I have never been more humbled or broken down. What's more, I felt almost zero passion or excitement for parenting during the first year. In fact, I often avoided home because it was so difficult and painful. Parenting was and continues to be the hardest thing I've ever done, as many parents realize. It feels like a magnifying glass on my weaknesses. I don't have any kids myself, 
but going from zero to five kids all in the same year. Can you just quickly talk about some of the challenges that came through? Yeah, for sure. It's kind of funny because while you were reading that, it sounded a lot like entrepreneurship. Honestly, like the first year can be pretty can can be pretty painful. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So when we first got our kids, I was in the first year of my PhD program. My wife also was in the first year of her master's program, yeah. and she had always wanted to be a foster parent, and I was cool with that. I was fine with you know when you're on a journey with someone, you're willing to kind of give and take. So we got three kids. They were all siblings, and. It was just a huge adjustment. I mean, at first off, I'd never been a parent and becoming a parent is a huge shift. I mean, you've got to really, you got to start caring about them more than you care about yourself, which is freaking hard. Cause like mm-hmm. it can be really enjoyable to like either do your work or do school work or just veg out on YouTube. But like, they need you to like be with them and care about them and help them through school. And they're like throwing tantrums and stuff like are these three, you know, like when we got them because they came from a pretty rough background, like they all had and still do to some degree some pretty interesting issues. I mean, they're pretty tempered out a lot because we've now had them for quite a few years. But I mean, there would be like throwing chairs and just screaming and yelling and like just emotional breakdowns, like where one of them would like wouldn't be able to even like move because he'd like emotionally shut down. And then just teaching them how to sleep, you know, and like, mm-hmm. I mean, there was just so much. And the house was a mess. Like, you know, we're, we're pretty clean and simple people, you know, and we were just both college students like our house was pretty simple and then all of a sudden there's toys everywhere and just messes everywhere and like my wife's exhausted with bags under her eyes you know and we're like (laughs) I remember the first year actually and I actually wrote a blog post about this on the New York Observer I'll have to find it and send you a link but just talking about like I remember our kids just for a while they just didn't know how to sleep because their biological parents just let them just stuck them in front of a tv all night or like gave them cough syrup to get them to bed like and so these kids didn't know how to go to sleep. And so we had to, I had to like sit with them for hours and just like train them to go to bed. I mean, it was just, it was just crazy. And to be honest with you, it was, I just bluntly like didn't get a lot of meaning or joy out of it for a while and had to kind of reanalyze the situation and kind of start investing myself in it more. Yeah. There's a tip in your book where and we can talk about it a bit later where you say, look at the things that have negatively impacted you in the past and assess how they can actually help you positively in the future. I'd like to go deeper into that in a little bit, but Mm -hmm. just quickly, the conception of the book, where did it come from and how long did it take you? Yeah. Well, I I will just briefly say that, yes, to your point, and we will go deep into it. I don't view that situation the same way as I did when I was having it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Otherwise it would have been a trauma, but it's not anymore. It's, it really was beautiful learning and I'm going to see it differently in the future. But um, so in my PhD program, I learned a lot about personality. Personality is one of the broadest topics in psychology. It's actually one of the core subjects in psychology. And there's several different theories about what personality is, how it works, where it comes from, if it's innate, if it's fluid. Like, I mean, there's just, I mean, it's just such a confusing topic, but it's so personal to everyone. And and I think we all kind of have our own theory about who we are and about how people work. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. And one of the things that I learned in my program. So as an organizational psychologist, we spend a lot of our time studying how tests are made, like tests and measures and how, how to analyze things. And obviously part of that's it's called psychometrics. It's, it's the development and basically the validation of tests. Mm-hmm. And what I was always surprised by is, is that my professors all told me over and over and over again that like type-based, like overly categoric tests like Myers and Briggs are just not scientific. And like, I actually thought that was interesting, not because I thought that the tests were interesting, but just because they're so pop culture. 
and I had actually taken some of the tests in the past, but and I tell stories about that, but didn't really care too much about it. But it was just interesting me, into me to learn that they weren't scientific. But that ultimately wasn't the core reason. The core reason I wrote the book, ultimately, or the tipping point, you could say, is that I read the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you or your listeners have heard of that book, but it's a very powerful book. It's So again, it's called The Body Keeps the Score, number one book on trauma. And Bessel van der Kolk's the one who wrote it, very famous doctor. And mm-hmm. he talks about how trauma freezes your personality and keeps you stuck in the past and keeps you stuck kind of as your former identity. And it also trauma, and this is like an emotional trauma, it shatters your imagination and your confidence and your flexibility as a person. So you stop being able to learn. And so when I learned that, I thought that's so interesting because one of the core assumptions in psychology is, is that the best way to predict the future is to look at the past. And so I thought, well, I don't want my future to be exactly like my past, (laughs) but also there's reasons why people get stuck in patterns. And so I I was seeing that trauma was one of the big ones. And I thought, okay, I want to better understand what personality is and where it really comes from. And so that's what led me to write the book. And it took me about, all in all, probably two years to research and write. You mentioned trauma affecting your past. I know that here at The Stressless Entrepreneur, our, our goal is to inform our listeners that if they are undergoing stress, then they need to be more self-aware on how their response is to stress because if they don't handle or look after their body or their minds, then they could actually cause trauma due to that stress. So that's a great thing to hear from yourself and the book as well. Thank you, man. Yeah, I I love your concept as far as stress as entrepreneur. I think that should be the goal, (laughs) 100%. So in, in terms of some of the personality myths that are debunked within the book, I just wanted to bring to your attention just one of them and its personality is innate and fixed. Are you able to quickly just go into more detail about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the core beliefs that many people have in pop culture, and it's very much non-scientific, it's a reflection of kind of how many psychologists viewed personality maybe back in the 50s and 60s, but recent research and even research way back into the 70s kind of proves that this is not true. (laughs) But Pop culture, many people in pop culture still believe that personality is innate. It's just self-contained and that it's non-influenced by outside factors and that it's unchangeable. And so basically it's the belief that who you are is who you are. So like if you're an introvert, you're always going to be an introvert kind of thing. And that view leads people to try to discover who they really are because because you can't really choose who you are, but because who you are is just who you were born to be, you've got to find yourself. And that's why people prefer personality tests or try to, they try to find ways to figure themselves out. And, you know, the research at this point is pretty dang clear that that's just not true. Your personality changes over time. You know, you're not the same person you were four or five years ago. You're going to, you have different preferences. You've got different habits. You've got a different environment. Mm-hmm. And those things can change abundantly over time. So your view of yourself is very different. And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the core aspect is that it does change and it can change very dramatically. And the longer the gap between when you, let's just say, take a personality test, you're going to get very, very different scores. Yeah. You mentioned introvert during the conversation. If we limit ourselves to either being an introvert or extrovert, then we are in a sense limiting our opportunities to move forward in life because that's, you can say one half of the decisions within introversion and one other one half is extroversion. So if you're saying I'm naturally an introvert, you automatically shut your mind away from extroversion type of environments or decision-making. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, basically what you're doing is you're saying, this is who I am and this is who I'll always be. Therefore, I'm only going to do things that I think fit within my current perspective of who I am. 
rather than saying, what do I ultimately want? I mean, do I want to be more social? Like rather than saying that you're just saying, this is who I am. This is black and white. I'm not flexible in this view. Like I'm hundred percent right. <laughs> the truth is, is that your current view of yourself is very limited. You know, the research shows that your future self even is going to be a different person than you are today yep. and your environment. If you change your environment, you'll be different. You know, you're not always an introvert. And this is speaking to someone who's one way or the other. Yep. So the idea of labels in general leads to tunnel vision. It leads to a fixed mindset. It leads you to seeing yourself through a very narrow view. Mm -hmm. Psychologists call this selective attention. We only see what's meaningful to us. So it's kind of like when you buy a car. If you buy a car, you start to see that car everywhere. Mm -hmm. But you, you don't notice the hundreds of other cars that are also there. You just only see the ones that are like relevant. That's kind of what labels do. You only see things that are relevant to you from your current perspective, and you miss all of the other things that are also true. And so that's what labels do to you, is they, they, they lead you to being mindless. That's what Harvard research from Ellen Langer found is that people who define themselves as depressed or any other way, they stop seeing all the times when the label isn't true. Yep. And so I, the other negative aspect of all this is that people then, once they've overly identified with a label, they then seek to confirm their bias. They try to prove the label is true <laughs> to mm -hmm. themselves and other people, and so they then create a life around them to try to prove to themselves what the label is. But what they've really done is just told a story about themselves. And that's really where identity comes from is it comes from the story you tell yourself. And so they're saying, I'm an introvert and they're confirming that. And then it leads to their environments and their choices. And so ultimately they're choosing their identity, even though they don't think that they chose it. Mm -hmm. And there are usually two groups of people when it comes to personality and personality tests specifically, you know, you have the camp where, people swear by personality tests and how it's helped them in life. And then there are the skeptics who are saying it's unscientific. So how can it help me in my push to success? Now, I interviewed a certified Enneagram coach back in March, Chris Hines. I asked him the same question. My question to him was, do you have any comments to the skeptics? Now, I want to spin that the other way and ask you, do you have any comments for the people who swear by personality tests? Yes. I know why they're attractive. Mm -hmm. They're attractive because they give you a sense of identity. It's really difficult to not be able to define yourself. Like if you don't have a way to explain yourself clearly, then what that means is that your identity is muddled and there's a lot of ambiguity and that creates kind of stress because then you can't define yourself and therefore you can't explain yourself and therefore you have a hard time relating with other people because you relate to other people by explaining yourself. Mm -hmm. And so personality tests are a really easy way to get an identity. You get a story, you know, I'm an ENFJ or I'm a blah, I'm whatever the test says you are. Mm -hmm. And so I can see why they're super attractive. I tend to believe that it's very fast food thinking. And I also understand that it can give you some form of insight. You know, what it really gives you is, is a way of explaining something that if you haven't spent a lot of time refining your past and clarifying your future, and if you haven't spent a lot of time being intentional and stuff like that, then it can explain things that you otherwise just weren't aware of. I think that you don't need these tests for self-awareness. And you certainly don't need these tests to understand your personality. And you don't need these tests to decide who you want to be. And so I would say, I get why people like them, but they ultimately do lead to a fixed mindset. And then they lead to trying to confirm your bias of who you are. And ultimately, what the purpose of the test is and why I really don't like them, and I think why they're so limiting is that the purpose of the test is to kind of try to conf overly confirm who you think you are rather than deciding who you'd like to be. Like you're very much on a witch hunt, it seems like, where you're like, I really want to understand myself. I really must define myself. 
And the truth is, is your current view of yourself is so limited. <laughs> like mm -hmm. your mm -hmm. current view of yourself is just one snapshot. It's one perspective. You don't see the world as it is. You see the world as you are. You don't see your personality as it is. You see it as you are. Like it's just your view and your view changed from what it was last year. Your view changed from what it was five years ago and your view in the future is going to be different as well. And from another scientific perspective, you know, I'll just share one research study that looked at this. I mean, aside from the literally dozens now, or even probably more that show that your personality, the bigger the gap between when you take these tests, you know, like if you take it, if you take the same test once and then take it again next week, you might get similar scores. I say might, because if you're in a different mood, you're going to get a different score. Mm -hmm. If you're in a different environment, you're going to get a different score. This is one of the reasons why they're non-scientific is because they're non-valid and they're non-reliable. Mm -hmm. These are two things that are required for a test to be scientific. Valid means that it's studying what it actually says it's studying. So I can't tell you that the Enneagram fully studies personality. Like what's its description of personality? Like, does it actually fully contain everything that's involved in personality in that test? So is it fully valid? Like, is it truly studying personality or is it studying something else? Yep. And is it reliable? And if it's reliable, that means that you're going to get the same score every single time. And you're not, you're going to get different scores for a million of different reasons. And one, I'll just say this last thought, one study took two groups of people and they had the one group take the same test twice. Mm -hmm. I think the interval was maybe a week or two and the same administrator gave them the test. So the same person, there was one test administrator, gave the same group the personality test two different times. In that situation, the scores were quite similar. Not perfectly similar, but quite similar. Mm -hmm. The other group had the same situation where they took the same personality test over the same period of time. Like they took it and then they took it again a week or two later. But the only difference was is that there was two separate test administrators. One gave them a test the first time and a different person gave them the test the second time. And by just changing that one little condition, the scores were completely non-correlated, meaning that the people totally answered the test differently just because of who was giving them the test. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to ask yourself, why the heck did you get the score you got? And so I would be a little worried about how non-reliable these tests are. The reason why I ask that is because there's a, an industry out there that rely on personality tests to assist them in their coaching business, which comes to my second question, did you get feedback from the industry that is coaching and corporate, I guess, psychology while you were writing the book? I mean, the feedback I got was honestly from my professors and from scientific research. <laughs> like, yep. I understand that many, many people use these tests and many coaches use these tests. And I'm not going to tell them that they shouldn't. Like, I can understand why if you're in a pinch and if you need to hire someone for a certain role and you think you might need a specific type of personality to achieve that role that you're going to use one of these tests to get a quick snapshot. I'm fine with that. I think the research is pretty clear that personality is not the biggest predictor of success yep. in, in hiring. I'm, that's pretty clear. I think culture actually has a lot firmer aspect on success than a personality test. And if a culture is strong, it will reshape the identity and the personality of the people within that group. But I didn't go and ask people who use these tests their opinion. I just went with the actual research and the science behind why these tests are not effective and that there are better ways and means to hire, you know, intelligence being one. There actually is useful personality measures, which I mentioned in the book, like the big five. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But these do not categorize people as a single type. You just have a score as a continuum. You would never actually label yourself as an introvert. You would just say like, you have a percentage of, you know, you that, often shows up that way. But even those tests say that your personality is going to flex, you know, it's going to be flexible over time. Mm -hmm. But you would never overly claim yourself as a certain type for the reasons we list above, which is, it's not always true. It leads you to being mindless. And it's incredibly 
detrimental for psychological flexibility, which is required for learning. Talk about the big five. One of my friends did introduce the big five to me quite recently. And one thing I like about the test is, like you said, it puts you into a spectrum that allows for some form of flexibility over time. But yeah. The big five is definitely the most research-backed theory of motivation. And again, it's a theory. <laughs> yep. I think one of the big problems with people and their personalities is that they don't think that these things are theories. They think that they're like hardcore facts. Like mm -hmm. even the big five is simply a theory and it's in a very imperfect theory. In, in the United States, it's a theory that makes a lot of sense. But in other cultures, the big five actually doesn't work because people in other cultures totally view personality differently than they do in the United States. And so it's an imperfect view, but it's a view. And as you said, it's it's incredibly flexible. And there's a lot of great research now testing how to proactively change your personality in desired ways or to be in various roles where you can develop aspects of your personality. Because all of these things can be developed. You can learn social skills. You can learn meditation skills. You can learn how to be more, I guess you could call it introverted. You could learn how to be more like desires to be alone. You can learn how, I mean, these are all skills that you can learn when you become flexible. You've mentioned being intentional and being proactive when it comes to your personality. There's a quote I just want to quickly grab from your book and it goes, intentional change is emotionally rigorous. It doesn't exactly feel good and can even be shockingly painful. If you're unwilling to put yourself through emotional experiences, shift your perspective and make purposeful changes to your behavior and environment, then don't expect whose changes. Becoming psychologically flexible is key to personal transformation, not over attachment to your current identity or perspectives. That, to me, as I read that, sounds very similar to, like you said before, an entrepreneur's journey to success because that's what we are all about, isn't it? It's about moving forward and undergoing, taking the next step, but understanding that these are challenges that are just business as usual for our journey. Yeah. I mean, I, what I love about entrepreneurship is that, you know, and there's a lot of really cool research on this, which I didn't explicitly write about in the book because this book's more general. But I mean, in order to become an entrepreneur, you have to assume the identity of an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of research about people like entrepreneurs or like athletes or entertainers, people who do unique things with their lives. They all have to go through a process of shifting their identity where they then go through this storytelling process where they define themselves as an entrepreneur. And you start to see yourself that way and you begin to watch yourself make investments in a business and take risks. And, and those emotional experiences solidify your new identity. But it, of course, it's, it requires courage to pursue a new goal. I mean, one of the big things that I think is interesting and also exciting about all of this. So there's, there's a lot of research about how the number one regret that people face on their deathbed is that they did not have the courage to be who they wanted to be, but they basically limited themselves based on the expectations that they thought other people had of them. That's literally the number one regret that people have on their deathbed is that they were not courageous enough to do what they want to do. And I think when it comes to entrepreneurship, or when it comes to doing anything, you've got to ask yourself, what would I ultimately choose? Like, who would I want to be? What would I love to be doing if I could just have it, if I could choose it rather than like, and without worrying about if you would fail or without worrying about what people thought or without worrying about who you've been, without worrying about all of those things, if you just said, what do I genuinely want? Seriously, like, what do I absolutely want more than anything? And if you then took the time to clarify that, like if you actually played with that rather than just quickly ignored it or like thought about it once every five years, but if you like really thought about it and if you conceptualized it and if you defined it, and obviously you've got to realize that it's based on your current view, you know, it's based on what you currently want. 
And in the future, once you achieve it, you'll want something else. Or mm-hmm. once you get a little bit more information, but, but just to be honest, what do you really want? And to take the time to clarify, because if you don't clarify it, in fact, the research is really clear on this. If you don't know who your future self is, you can't make powerful decisions here and now. Think about it. If you don't know where you want to go, then how could you possibly choose what to do with your time? Like you couldn't, you couldn't choose what to meaningfully do if you don't have any goal. <laughs> like mm-hmm. who's to say what you should do right now if you don't have any direction on where you want to go? In, in psychology, there's a concept called deliberate practice, which is essentially the 10,000 hour rule that Malcolm Gladwell popularized. But mm-hmm. basically what the research shows is that deliberate practice is different from just doing something a lot. Like you could go to the gym every single day and do the same workout routine over and over and over again, and you're not going to get any better. But if you have a specific goal, a very clear future self in mind, and then you go through a process of growth and change and you know feedback, you can become that person. And that's really what deliberate practice is. It's meaningful progress, meaningful change. And you can't do that without a future self in mind. And so you know, this is just some of the thoughts that I have. I like that you mentioned deliberate practice because a lot of people do say that they want to be healthier. But then what does healthier really mean in terms of deliberate practice is going to the gym, like you said, and just going on a treadmill 30 minutes a day. Is that going to provide you or give you the benefit of a healthier life? What overall, holistically, do you need to do to kind of give you that, that ultimate benefit? So like that. Throughout your book, you talk about using your future self or future identity and having a conversation with your past self. Are you able to describe that just quickly to the listeners? Because that might be confusing to some of us. It is. Yeah, it can be confusing. Put it this way. Think about even your future self right now. If you have some sense of who you'd like to be, let's just Mm -hmm. imagine your future self 10 years out. They're 10 years older than you are right now, right? And if they could have a conversation with even you right now, you today, what advice would they give you, right? Like if you actually thought about that and if you journaled about it and if you actually were thoughtful rather than just like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But no, if you really thought about it, your future self in 10 years. So I'm 32 years old. Mm -hmm. So if I'm scoping out the 42-year-old version of Benjamin Hardy and where he's at, what would he tell me now that would help me make better decisions here and now? So that's a very helpful conversation as far as getting advice from your future self. But when I'm talking about having a conversation between your future self and your former self, I'm talking about the former version of you that may have been hurt or traumatized or gone through a lot of difficult pain. And if this pain hasn't been resolved. So we all go through really hard things in our life. There's no way around it. Whether it's me when my parents got divorced when I was 11 years old and my father became a drug addict or going through a car accident or failing a test or being told or having your friends abandon you, whatever it may be, we all go through a lot of stuff and all of that stuff, if not healthily resolved and learned from, will stunt you. It'll basically inform your identity. It'll inform your personality. And that's really what trauma is all about. And so this is about, and you could do this in your head or you can do this in your journal, but thinking about all right, this, this isn't really about learning how to have empathy towards your former self and realizing that they were doing the best that they absolutely could. And this may be interesting. It's also about realizing that your former self is someone you still have a relationship with right now. Like you're mm-hmm. carrying that version of you around with you wherever you go. And that self, that version of you is not objective. It's based on your current view of yourself. And so you can actually change your relationship with your former self. You can even change the identity and the person of your former self. Like if you're currently mad at who you were because of the decisions you made, or if you're currently mad at other people because they hurt you, Mm -hmm. you can go back and you can, in a sense, have an imaginative conversation. Although what this really is, is kind of just viewing the situation differently, but you can heal 
and reshape the meaning of those experiences so that your former self can be viewed differently. You can, you can realize that they did the best that they could or that they were a hero or, you know, even, I mean, this may be interesting, but I've interviewed people who literally went to prison because they did terrible things, maybe even potentially killed people. And obviously this isn't to say that these things are justifiable, but you've got to, for this person who goes to prison because of what they've done, Mm-hmm. they've got to come to some sense of forgiveness, even towards themselves. And once you forgive yourself or forgive those who have hurt you, then you can kind of let that go. And you don't have to carry that side of yourself with you anymore. You can have empathy and compassion and better understanding and context towards why yourself was that way and why they were doing what they were doing. And also an understanding that you're not that person anymore. Yep. And so a helpful way of potentially doing that in a journal exercise is just saying, what would the future version of you say to your former self? as far as to maybe give encouragement or support or perspective to help them through what they're dealing with? Or maybe what would their, what would your hero, maybe someone you really aspire to, what would they say to your former self? And it's just kind of a good way to like relive that experience, but from a different perspective so that you can then shift the memory and the energy of the moment. You mentioned journaling a couple of times during that uh, discussion. To the people that I've, I've spoken to previously, you know, journaling is really important to them. And I personally believe also that journaling is a great way to reduce stress. Can I get some of your comments in regards to journaling? Oh my goodness. It is one of the most powerful tools. <laughs> yep. And there's a lot of great science, obviously, behind how you can use it for gratitude as an example, but you can also use it as a form of clarity, decision-making, emotional regulation. So as an example, you know, and I love the idea of stressless. If you're stressing out and if you're having a hard time or if you're trying to make a decision or if you're overwhelmed, one of the best things you can absolutely do is pull out your journal and just write about what you're feeling, write about what you're dealing with, write about why it's so hard, write about why it's frustrating. Mm -hmm. I tell a story about Jane Christensen in the book and she created what she calls her rage journal, rage, because she's an entrepreneur. She's dealing with a lot of stuff as everyone is. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're dealing with so much and all of us really are in today's world. But if you don't have time to actually like conceptualize your emotions, then you will be controlled by them. So Mm -hmm. what happens is, is, there's two stages of emotions. There's your primary emotions, which is basically your reaction to events. And then there's your secondary emotions, which is basically how you end up feeling about the situation over a long period of time. So we all have a, an initial reaction. You know, like if I get cut off on the road, like if I'm driving and someone cuts me off, my initial reaction may be I might get a little upset or I might be freaked out. You're not really supposed to be judgmental of the initial reaction. That's just something that happens. But what happens next is where you can become intentional about your emotions and then you can resolve them and the stress can go away. And so, you know, as far as emotional regulation, you could then just acknowledge, wow, that was intense, you know, but like I can let this go, you know? Mm -hmm. And so writing about former experiences or even writing about future goals is just a way to get your head and your emotions out on paper so that you can then think about them clearly. Yeah. Talking about former experiences, let's go back to the conversation with yourself and your experience in raising the kids. There's a practice or a recommendation in the book that you should use your past experiences, whether negative or positive, to help you reach your goals for the future. Can we use you as a specific example for using a negative experience in your past, specifically in relation to your raising your kids, to benefit you in the future? Yeah. What I'll tell you now is, is honestly... what. How I framed it while it was happening was as a negative experience. How I frame it now is that it was an incredibly positive experience. And so that's one of the keys is that my view of the experiences that I was having are totally different now. Uh, I can, I'm incredibly humbled and grateful that I went through that because 
it's changed my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, so becoming a foster parent of three kids, having zero parenting background, I think that this is one of the best things. And I'm not saying that becoming a foster parent is one of the best things you can do, although I think it's great. But doing totally new things is how you actually become more flexible as a person. Mm -hmm. Put it like, think if, as one example, I'll dive a little deeper into being a foster parent of these kids. But just as one example, we now have 15 month old twins. And we live in Florida where there's swimming pools. We have a swimming pool, in fact. Mm-hmm. And so because we don't want our girls to accidentally fall in the pool and drown, we're, they're doing swimming lessons at age 15 months. And like they're, they're getting like dropped in the swimming pool and they're learning how to flip over on their back and like swim and calm themselves and stuff. Like, that, like most people as they age, they're less willing to do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're less willing to put themselves in radically new situations where they're forced to learn. Like our 15-month-olds, yeah, they cry a little bit when they get thrown in, but they've gotten really dang good at swimming. And that's kind of how it felt becoming a foster parent. Like we got thrown in. Like there wasn't, I mean, there was a little bit of training, but it was like, bang, like you've got these three kids and they're living at your house. And now like you got to figure out what to do about it. Just like our twins have to figure out how to flip over and swim on their back. And so to me, what it did was so many other things. I mean, I'm, I'm a far more flexible and confident person because I went through that. And I'm also different. My, par- my priorities are different than they were five years ago before I had kids. Like mm-hmm. my perspectives are different. My, what matters to me is different. What I'm willing to do is different. How I define success is different. My empathy. I mean, I didn't used to cry through movies. Now I cry through movies, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. on a practical side, one of the things that it did to me was is it, it created an intense sense of urgency that ultimately led me to becoming a writer. Like I had wanted to be a writer for years before I started writing in 2015. But we got these kids as foster kids in 2015. And what I realized when we got these kids is that my time was going to be incredibly limited because now I had three kids to focus on and I didn't have all the time in the world to just chill. Mm-hmm. And I had this sense of responsibility that if I'm going to take care of these kids, I better get serious about my career. And I was committed to becoming a writer. And I think that this is a key is that when you have a goal, you got to commit to that goal. You can't just think this, is, this would be great. It's like, no, you've got to get serious about it because you can become it. And so that's where I really got really committed. And I started learning. I started investing in myself as a writer. I bought online courses that taught me how to write viral headlines. I really defined out my future self as a professional writer. I got mentoring. I started failing. I started blogging all the time. And then I quickly, you know, deliberately practiced my way up and, you know, became that person. And so becoming a foster parent, I think really shoved me off the cliff as far as like, you got to get serious about this now. And uh, it really helped me. And in terms of the personal brand, Benjamin Hardy, what's next for you? What's coming up in terms of your goals? What have you set yourself for the next 12 or even 24 months? I love this question so much. Let me first start by saying, I think once you've clarified your future self and actually defined it, the most important thing you can do next is to start telling everyone about that because that needs to become your new story. If you start telling everyone about where you're going, First off, you're now being more congruent and aligned with who you plan to be, but also people can then measure your progress along the way. If you can't, if you're not telling people where you want to go, the people are just going to assume that you're the same person you were four years ago. But if yep. you're actually telling people where you're wanting to go and you're and they're watching you do it, then they'll be able to see your change happen in real time, which is really exciting. And I love your question as far as the personal brand and as far as kind of what all this looks like. So the future version of me, which is something that's really important to me. I would say in about three years is kind of the timeline, probably two to three, is that I'm going to make a dramatic pivot, actually. So I will continue to be writing books, similar topics as personality isn't permanent, willpower doesn't work. And by the way, 
we might need to do a second interview because I've got a, a book coming out by a guy named Dan Sullivan. He's the strategic coach founder, and this is a purely entrepreneurial book, which you would love. Mm -hmm. I would send you a PDF if you want. You'd love it, but um, Fantastic. I'm going to continue to be writing popular press books, but actually, and interestingly, I'm going to be stepping away from a lot of my entrepreneurial activities. I'm a part of a lot of entrepreneurial groups and I do a lot of entrepreneurial collaborations and I spend a lot of time, let's just say doing like courses and things like that. And like, you know, I don't do a lot of coaching, but I, I have courses and I do like business and stuff like that. And I, and I love it. But I, I kind of want to scale that back and I'll, I'll be still writing books, but actually I'm going to be focusing a lot more on like on spiritual things. So like when I was 20 years old, I served a church mission. Mm -hmm. It was very important to me personally because it was kind of the catalyst to changing my life. And I just love that audience. Like one of my, like Dan Sullivan, the same guy who I was just talking about, he's got a question that really helps you define your audience. But basically the question is, who do you want to be a hero to? Mm -hmm. You know, you obviously want to be a hero to entrepreneurs and you want to help them have a stressless life. So like you, everything you're doing, at least with this podcast, is to help you be a hero to entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And if I asked myself that question, who do I want to be a hero to? I think that's a really important question to answer. And I think it really helps clarify who your future self is. But for me, I want to be a hero to missionaries because that was kind of where my life changed. And so I'm actually going to make a pivot and spend a lot of my time in more leadership capacities. I think a lot of what I've learned, even as an organizational psychologist and as a communicator, is to help me to help those types of people, you know, on a more spiritual front. And so I'm going to be spending way more of my time there. But in order to actually do that, I need to... I need to make a lot of money because <laughs> yep. uh, I, I would ultimately and effectively retire. And so basically what I explain in the book is, is that once you've clarified your future self and the situation and what you're focused on, you obviously have to set a goal that would allow you to create that for yourself. And, and the goal that would enable me to become that person where I could pretty much dedicate 24 seven or at least whatever working hours I want to more of the spiritual side of things. And even like the, you know, missionary, like serving and helping that audience in more of a leadership capacity would be to sell, you know, the goal I have is honestly to sell 10 million copies of personality isn't permanent. Mm -hmm. I think if I were to do that and obviously create a smart funnel behind it, that I could probably make just to be blunt, a few $10 million. Like I could probably make 20 or $30 million. I would probably invest that wisely and obviously donate probably half of it. Yep. But that would enable me basically for the foreseeable future to continue writing to the extent that I choose to. And I love doing it and I find a lot of meaning out of it. But then basically I could spend the rest of my time doing kind of that higher cause stuff. And so that's what I'm going to do. And I'm totally excited about it. And I think that the future self and the situation and the cause that you're a part of becomes the why. And it, it becomes so exciting that the goal, no matter how seemingly impossible it is, becomes very doable. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that you talk about purpose. Right now, you do have a purpose and you understand that in the future, that the purpose will need to pivot. And, you know, you've already started conceptually thinking about how you can do that and setting some a preemptive conceptual goals of what's that look like on the other side. So that's a great way to look at that future self as well. Well, the goal really does shape the process, you know? So, I mean, I'm going to just be blunt, like you, as an example, mm -hmm. you are doing what you're doing with the podcast because of some vision you have. Yes, you enjoy doing it. Yes, you love it, but you do have a vision and it's why you do this so well. And it's why you're getting better and better. So like when I was a first year graduate student back in 2015, I was really clear that at that point, I wanted to become a professional author. I didn't have a website, never written a blog post, had no agent, basically had no platform, no even website. But because I was very clear on the future self, and then because I then set a, a goal, and the goal was to get a six-figure book deal with one of the big five publishers in New York. I wanted to be a traditionally published author. I wanted to be making six figures writing so that I could provide for my family and also so that I could have the flexibility. So like 
a six-figure book deal was the goal. And you have to kind of have a clearly conceptualized goal because your brain really needs tangibility. Like it needs it to be tangible. And once you have a goal, you can reverse engineer it. And so like I then asked a lot of authors, agents, et cetera, like how do you get a six-figure book deal? After asking like 50 people that question, I realized I needed 100,000 email subscribers. Like that, mm-hmm. that's what would be required. And so like the goal kept getting clarified and the path kept getting clarified. And like this is required for motivation. Like in order to be motivated, you need a goal, you need a path, and then you need to build the competency or the confidence to get there. And so like one of the reasons I believe that I was able to accelerate so fast as a writer, because I mean, it was only a few months into writing and blogging that I was able to like get millions and millions of views and ultimately become that professional writer in less than two years. And then the book deal that I got was for Willpower Doesn't Work, which was let you know it was less than two years after I started blogging. I was able mm-hmm. to get that goal. And it's because I was really focused on the goal. You know, and this is a, a difficult conversation for creative people because the conversation is, well, do you focus on the goal or the process? And, you know, I really hit this kind of hard in the book, but if you're really committed to the goal, then you will create a good process. And as you, and this is really what deliberate practice is all about, as you're moving forward towards the goal, like for example, if I'm writing five blog posts a month, just as an example, and I'm getting 4,000 views, but I really want to get, be getting a million views, then I have to adjust how I'm writing my blog posts. I need more coaching. I need more knowledge. I need to better study things so that I can maybe get up to 40,000 views or 400,000. And so like the results you get along the way reshape your process. But if you're only excited about some process and not a goal, then who knows where that's going to take you. Yep. So for myself... Like, I don't know how to sell 10 million books, but I know that just like you can reverse engineer how to get a six-figure book deal, you can reverse engineer how to get 10 million books. I'm not the kind of person who can do that right now. That's where my future self is. Yep. I don't have the skills, the confidence, the capability. That's not who Benjamin Hardy is today, the one you're talking to. But in the future, that will be something that he can do. Yep. And it comes down to um, stepping stones, isn't it? If, if you manage to reach 5 million in sales, 10 million just becomes that so much more easier. I mean, even if you hit 500,000, then it's like, wow. Like, it, yep. I mean, that's really how you start to build confidence and belief is like, wow. Okay. Okay. This is starting to become real. Like I can now see where I, where I've got to shift. In these current times of uncertainty with COVID-19, we've seen the impacts, you know, some companies have been able to recover and some haven't. Do you have any advice on those who are still struggling and stressed out? in ways that they can use this book to help them get through some of these stages of, I guess, uncertainty and stress? There's a few exercises or thoughts that I have. One is, is that uncertainty, there's a really good quote that's been on my mind lately. And that's that if nothing is certain, then anything is possible. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, if everything's certain, then, you know, and obviously entrepreneurship, there's almost nothing that's purely certain, you know, like you can't actually make choices if everything's certain. And so the uncertainty factor, although it's stressful and creates anxiety is not actually the problem. The problem is how you're currently coping with the uncertainty. Obviously, what you've described is many different situations. There's some people listening who their businesses are basically non-affected by what's going on. Mm -hmm. And there's other people whose businesses are pretty much tanking. And I know people on both ends of the spectrum. The quote that comes to my mind is a quote throughout the book. And that's basically that this is happening for me, not to me. Like basically, the world is becoming incredibly adaptive or, or flexible. Like, I mean, this is just one example of what occurs to a global world. Basically, I'm thinking about it from a systems perspective. And when when a system becomes increasingly chaotic or complex, more and more crazy things happen, you know? And so when you go from a a local world to a global world, and I mean, obviously, crazy stuff's going to start happening. And so if this is negatively impacting you, you've got two choices. You can either be destroyed by it, in which case it would be defined as a trauma, 
or you can take it as really brilliant information. Yep. Basically, it can be emotion or it can be information. And if you view it as this is happening for me and that this is something that, yes, super painful, yes, it sucks, but ultimately you get to choose. You, I mean, because it is happening, right? So, I mean, if your business is falling apart, it's happening whether you feel great about it or whether you're being destroyed by it. Your mm-hmm. personal emotional energy and reaction and perception of it is on you. And I'm, I'm not trying to like be non-empathetic. Like we need to be empathetic, but here's another question. How would your future self feel about this? Like what, it, what, what would your future self tell you right now? <laughs> you know, like who is your future self? You know, I've asked a lot of people, you know, I run a course right now that has over 1500 people in it. And I asked them, you know, like how is your future self conception helping you through this experience? And they're like, well, it's helping me stay focused because it's easy to be really distracted. It's helping me to continue to take courageous leaps. It's helping me to move forward even when things are really tough. Mm -hmm. And so this can either be a breaking point for you or it can be something that is going to build an enormous sense of confidence. Like what they say is there's two ways you can go about this. You can either have post-traumatic stress or you can have post-traumatic growth. Either this thing's going to help you have a bigger future or you're going to be defined by this experience and it's going to heavily limit your future and your imagination. And if this is something that you can grow from and take as a building block, then your future is going to be way bigger than your past. And and this is, I think, where all of the things that we've talked about today come in handy. Journaling about what you're going through. I mean, if things are falling apart, you're stressed out. I mean, this is terrible. And I understand. And and there's no downplaying that this is rough. And this was unexpected for a lot of people and that this is kind of crazy. So this is a time for you to journal about it. There's a time for you to really think about kind of how you want to view this, about what you can do about it and about what, how the future is going to be different because of this. And, and then maybe taking time to really clarify what maybe this should shift your goals a little bit. And maybe what would you do in the future to kind of shield yourself from something like this happening in the future so that you maybe could be more prepared in the future for something like this. You know, I mean, you could really use this as such a brilliant stepping stone for future success and not downplaying the amount of tragedy that's occurred. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this could be a great opportunity for you if you take the time to learn about it. One other thing that I've done that's really helped me with this experience recently is thinking about what I did before this experience. Because I, obviously I didn't anticipate this happening. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't think that this was going to occur. But in a lot of ways, I've been spending the last 10 years of my life setting myself up so that if something like this or something even worse happened, that it wouldn't crush me. You know, like, so I've got a wife and five kids, you know, I've got a home-based business. I'm not saying my situation's near perfect. There's people who are far more flexible and what you would call anti-fragile than I am. Mm -hmm. But my family is essentially non-affected by this. I think a lot of that has to do with our spiritual perspectives. A lot of that has to do with the routines we've built. Like my, my wife is basically at home, you know, basically, you know, homeschooling three kids with two twins at home. We do have her grandma living with us, which is really helpful, but we've had routines in place for so long. I mean, our kids go to bed at eight o'clock every night and like we have dinner together and, and we have a routine for zoning down and then they go to bed and they wake up. And so like our routine hasn't shifted at all. Like the fact that our kids are home more doesn't change almost anything. Like it's Mm -hmm. almost non-impactful and it's been non-impactful pretty much towards my income. But the only reason I bring all this up is because I've spent a lot of time thinking about what were some of the things that I did before all this happened without expecting this to happen that I'm grateful for. And, and even looking back now, now that this did happen, what are some of the things that I wish I would have thought about differently? Like, what are some of the things that maybe I could have done better so that if something like this occurred, and this is, again, just a way of framing your past and your experience, but I'm framing it positively by saying, like, what are the things I'm really stoked about and really happy about that I did or the decisions I made or the, thing, or the investments I made that have allowed me to maybe handle this situation better, but also what could I have prepared for better? And then you can start to use that for dealing with future situations because 
I believe that there is given just the world, you know, like obviously more crazy stuff's going to happen in the future. So hopefully we can learn from this so that we can be better prepared in the future. Yep. Yep. I love that throughout that discussion, you were constantly moving forward. Sorry. You were constantly asking questions about your future self, but also asking questions about your previous self and then how you can learn from that. That's such a great approach to handling this time of uncertainty. Ben, we're just running out of time. Is there anything that I, uh, I've left out that you'd like to discuss in further detail? No, I just think you're really fun to talk to, Tommy, and really enjoyed the conversation and really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hope I didn't offend any of your audience, <laughs> you know, I, I, with, uh, with some of my views on either personality tests or anything like that. And I uh, just want to let you all know that uh, you know, my intention is obviously to support and to help your growth. And just thank you for letting me be on your show. Just for our listeners, I'll make sure to have the links to your book and and your social media platforms in the show notes below. Uh, For everyone, the book is releasing today, the 16th of June. So Ben, um, where can they find that book? They can get the book pretty much anywhere, my friend. They can get the book on Audible, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. If bookstores are open, if bookstores are open, you can get it pretty much in any bookstore, I assume. And uh, I, I know that you'll love the book especially if you're an entrepreneur and you're someone seeking growth and transformation. Yep. And I agree as well because I've, I've been able to read the book and there's a lot of similarities when it comes to the entrepreneurial journey and some great, great recommendations on how we can succeed in our journey. Uh, with that said, Ben, thank you so much again for coming on to the show. It's been a pleasure. Tommy, it's been amazing. Thank you for an incredible interview. There you have it, guys. Thank you for tuning in to the Stressless Entrepreneur Podcast with me, your host, Tommy Bowie. If you like what you've heard today, please make sure you subscribe to our show and share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review so that we can take on your comments, grow with you as a channel, and keep providing you quality, stress-free content. If you have a story to tell or just want to say hi, drop me an email on hello at thestresslessentrepreneur.com. I'll catch you all on the next episode.